You are listening to East of Eden, a sermon series from the summer of 2008, taught at Hocassin Baptist Church. Today's sermon is entitled, Mercy East of Eden. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Good to have you here. If you're joining us uh, for the first time in a while, or for the first time, that is, uh, you're joining us in the middle of a sermon series on Genesis chapters 4 to 11. Uh, we've entitled East of Eden. So uh, today we are on the back half of the story of Noah's flood. And uh, that will be the subject of our conversation this morning. Last week, as we introduced Noah's flood, we talked about it as though it was a story that we kind of tell in two halves. And so today we're going to try to tell the whole story uh, as we finish up our Noah account. But before we do, if you'll pray with me, uh, we'll ask a blessing on the message. Lord, we, we pray that you would be with the words spoken and with the hearts that receive it. Father, we pray that you would grow us and that uh, this, the hearing of your word here would be an act of worship pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we started the flood account, uh, like I alluded to earlier, with this notion that sometimes we tell the flood story uh, a little bit halfway, that our children's books and the way we think about it and the Noah's Ark borders in our baby's bedrooms and their stuffed animal Noah's Arks kind of breed the good news side of, of Noah's Ark, that there's this half of Noah's Ark that, uh, that we like to tell, although it sometimes occurs with the exclusion of the other half. So we tell a, a story like God wants to uh, bless you. There's a plan, and there's a plan that God has for you. He wants to bring things to you, and and that's kind of how we tell the story of Noah's Ark. We're very rainbow-oriented Noah's Ark storytellers. We like smiling animals with their heads poking out of the boat, with a smiling Noah as they drift along the sea to the happy land of promise. And we we discussed last week that not only do we tell Noah's Ark story that way, but we have to be careful as a church. And as Christians, that we don't filter the gospel the same way. Because it's very easy for us to tell people a gospel like God has a plan in his, in, for you. God wants to bless you. God has good things in store for you. Which are true, aren't they? But they're true with other things that are true. And so we, we said last week, and we'll say it again today, that when we only tell part of the truth, it makes the part we're telling not so true anymore that really the gospel is only true, only really true, when it's the full gospel, which is what we hope Noah's Ark, or the account of Noah's Ark, will uh, tell us today. So here's where we are. If you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7, we'll pick up at the end of the 7th chapter, and while you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about what we concluded last week. If we're going to tell the whole story, the Noah account begins with this. Mankind is fatally flawed, we're prone to wickedness and sinfulness and despair. That is a critical element in this Noah's Ark account. It's the reason that God says, when you open up your children's book, and the first phrase is, God said to Noah, go build a big boat. It's the reason God said to Noah, go build a big boat. It's because God saw the wickedness of mankind, and we brought the second point out last week was, God judges, God is just, and he will judge unrighteousness. He judged it during the time of Noah, Christ will come again at the end of time and judge all of mankind accordingly. So there's this idea 
that the Lord, merciful though He is, is a just God and He will judge unrighteousness. And so those are two elements, man's wickedness and God's justice, that we cannot tell the whole gospel unless they become part of our vocabulary. And then we have this Noah character who seems to show up, and God treats Noah differently than He does mankind, doesn't He? God shows Noah mercy. Genesis says it this way, the Lord found favor on on Noah. He shows Noah mercy. And this mercy, the book of Hebrews talks about, is on account of Noah's faith. Hebrews 11 says, by faith Noah believed the Lord and had what the book calls holy fear. In other words, Noah feared the Lord and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. And so, the Lord saves Noah, and we know that this saving is, is in and of itself a gift. The God wasn't bound to save Noah, just like he's not bound to save you and me by a sense of justice. God saves us when we cry out because he's faithful to his promise, not because we deserve it. Right? So you and I will be saved, not because we've earned it, but because we know that salvation is a gift. So in the case of Noah, we might easily kind of use the verse in, in, in Ephesians 2 to say, by grace Noah was saved through his faith, but even this salvation was a gift, wasn't it? His salvation was a gift, as it is for us. And so by the end of last Sunday, we, we, we get to a point where Noah and his family are on a boat, they're at sea, and the waters are all around them. And that's where I'll begin reading this morning. Genesis 7, verse 23. This is where we ended last week. Verse 23, and I'll read the, to the end of the chapter. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, <clears throat> were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left with those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So when we ended last week, mankind has been judged, God's justice has been satisfied, and Noah, through grace, the grace of God, and Noah's faith, is safe on the ark. But there's something about ending the story there that is little less than what you and I have in mind when we think of salvation. When you and I think of salvation, we don't hope one day that our lives will end up, that maybe one day, if we're lucky enough, we'll be saved from destruction so we can sit on a boat for the rest of our lives. I mean, there's a loneliness in the way chapter 7 ends. Chapter 7, by the way, brings us to the climax of the story of Noah. The climax of the story of Noah is actually between 7 verse 24 and 8 verse 1. So it's been building all the way up to the climax, and at the very end of the climax it says, and Noah is all alone on the face of the deep, and he's there by himself with, with his family for 150 days. Now that's a, that's a lonely idea of salvation, because technically they're saved, aren't they? All of mankind is dead. Across the planet, all of mankind is dead, except Noah and his family. So the Lord has every right to say, I saved you, Noah. I mean, there is this idea that they are technically saved. There's salvation that has been experienced. But it's less than what you and I probably think is a wholesome life of salvation. I mean, I imagine during this 150-day ordeal, 
that Noah at some point probably said to himself, I hope this isn't it. All right? I mean, the, somewhere around day 70, him going, all right, if this is salvation, I better start pacing myself. Right? There's 150 days he's on this boat. That's kind of how the chapter ends. And you just got to imagine that, that Noah would say, what is the purpose of this? I hope the Lord has something else in store. Right? I'm saved, but I'm saved from destruction, but what is the point? And I think Noah's probably not the only person who has asked that question of the Lord. I imagine that there's people here today, myself included, who have experienced the salvation of the Lord. But then we start asking, well, what does the Lord want now? Where are we? What's supposed to happen? Now that I'm saved, what do I do? And that's where Noah finds himself at the end of chapter 7. But there's more to the story, right? That was only half the story. And so here's the rest of the whole story. I'm going to read to you the first phrase of the first verse of chapter 8. So you don't even have to read if you just want to listen. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. There's this idea that the author is, or the narrator is trying to convey to you that amidst this being saved and this loneliness at sea, the story's not over yet. God remembers Noah. And there's this idea that our salvation, or by extension Noah's salvation, is more significant than not being destroyed. So let me say it this way. Our salvation, and where we're going, our first point this morning is that our salvation is more significant than what you and I have been saved from. It has as much to do with what you and I are being saved for. And this is the place that Noah is right now. Noah's at this place where he goes, I'm saved from the flood, I'm saved from the destruction, but what am I saved for? And right here the author says, but God remembered Noah. And I think there are a fair number of Christians today that are sitting on a boat asking themselves, now that I'm saved from, what am I saved for? And here's how it might look. If you're wondering if you're that kind of person, hopefully you're not wondering like if you know somebody. Hopefully you're asking about yourself. This is how it might look. If you, day to day, think of your faith. When you think about your faith and your relationship with Christ, are you focused primarily on what God did for you or what God's doing with you? Is your idea of Christianity the, the moment that you accept his salvation for your sins? Or is your idea of Christianity a lot more than that? Is it what God is doing with you? How he participates with you day by day? How he grows with you? How you learn over and over how to speak to him and how to listen? So there's a first question. Because if your whole Christian experience is being saved from your sins, I would say you're probably sitting on the boat. And it's, it's probably somewhat satisfying, but not fully satisfying. And I would say it's okay not to be fully satisfied in that, because that's not the whole story. Here's another one. If your life, if your Christian life is built around managing sin, then you're probably living on the boat. So if day by day, your biggest concern or the way your faith works out in your life is, how do I get forgiveness for what I did yesterday? How does the Lord give me strength to not mess up tomorrow? Oh, I messed up again, but I got forgiveness. I messed up again, but I got forgiveness. If it's in this constant 
cycle of sin, of sinning and forgiving, sinning and forgiving, and that's as big as your faith is, I would say you're living an incomplete story. That you have good news, but there's better news. Because that, there has got to be more than that in this story. When the disciples were speaking with Christ after the resurrection, so Christ is among them, their sins are forgiven. I think we would agree. Their sins are forgiven. It's been finished. Everything's been done. All Christ has to do is to, to be ascended back into the heavens. And during this time, they still had a concern of what would they do when the Lord left. And it makes me wonder, if salvation of our sins is the whole story, then I don't see any real need for the Spirit. If salvation's all we needed, then it was solved at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. But that's not what Christ says to his disciples. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm sending. Right? He says, your sins are paid for, but there's something else. I'm going, but the advocate, the comforter, is coming to be with you because it's half the story. Christ, in his crucifixion and his resurrection, begins to tell a story that does not fully unfurl until the Spirit enters in the book of Acts. And that's where we are. We're at this place where God remembers I'm going to read you the rest of verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. He sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. In Genesis chapter 1, it goes like this. In the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says, And the Spirit hovered above the waters where the Spirit hovered above the chaos. That word Spirit is the exact same word as, and the Lord sent a wind to blow on the waters. It's the same Hebrew word. It's ruach. And we've spoken about it before. In fact, we spoke about it almost a year ago this Sunday when we dealt with Genesis 1 verse 2. But in that conversation, we talked that in the Hebrew idea, ruach, there's like 11 meanings. It could be power, force, spirit, God's strength, Wind, breath. So when the Lord breathes on us, it could be thought of as spirit. When we pray for the Lord's strength, we're praying for the Lord's spirit. Or at least when the Hebrew was praying in his native tongue, he'd pray and pray for the Lord's strength. And he'd say, pray for the Lord's ruach. Pray for the Lord's spirit. Pray for the Lord's ruach. When the wind would blow from God, the spirit would blow from God. And that's what we have here. And what you're seeing in chapter 8, verse 1, one of Genesis is exactly the same thing that's going on in chapter 1, verse 2 of Genesis, which is God is beginning again. God is starting a new beginning. Do you see it in Genesis 1, verse 2? The Spirit's hovering over the deep, and then God speaks, let there be light, and light bursts forth. And through the power of the Spirit, light bursts, bursts forth, the land comes up from the sea, After that, the Lord speaks again, and there's vegetation. The Lord speaks again using the breath of his voice, the spirit of his voice. Through the spirit, there's creation. And in Genesis 8, verse 1, you see the same thing happening. I was reading, I'll probably talk about this twice, but I like to read the early church fathers. Um, It's a bizarre habit of mine. And not because I think they're better. I think they're weirder. 
and they make me laugh a lot of times. And then every now and then between my chuckles, I'm absolutely floored by their insight. And I, I just, I'm utterly amazed. When they read 8 verse 1, they did not translate it wind. They said it can't be wind, it must be spirit. Because they said that there's always wind over the sea. They said the wind is always blowing over the sea, but it doesn't produce a power to make the seas recede. But they said this was a special kind of spirit wind. And I think that's the case. In fact, Augustine, the, the, the early church fathers, they have a hard time dealing with details just like you and I do. We have a hard time dealing with Genesis details because of our science. Right? We ask all these scientific questions all the time. They didn't have science. So when they got to the details, you know what their challenge was? They didn't know what to do with the details. They go, why would God give us details if we don't have anything to do with them? And so Augustine is preaching, like in the 300s, he's preaching on Noah and he's talking about the flood and he gets to this part where God says, go build a boat and build it, you know, big cubits by bigger cubits, on and on and on. I don't think Augustine knew what a cubit was. Right? And he doesn't have all this science to know that you know, the ratio of a boat is actually a viable design for a ship, which it is, by the way. It's almost the exact measurements of the ship that laid the transatlantic cable, almost to the foot. Yeah, he didn't know that. So he looks at these numbers and goes, well, what do I do? And the early church fathers, they adopted this method, which they called the allegorical method, which they said, well, every detail must have some kind of spiritual truth or significance or hidden meaning. So he looks at these numbers, the cubit by the cubit by the cubit, and he comes to this conclusion. He says, the length and the width and the height of the ark are the exact dimensions of a human body in the supine position. Which, right, sounds a little bit funny. I, I wouldn't, I'm not preaching this, I'm just telling you what he said. Right? But he says this, he gets, goes from there and he goes, the ark therefore is the body of Christ. And he says, in the church, the believers are carried above judgment by riding on the body. He says, the door on the side of the ark is the hole in the side of Christ, where the spear pierced Christ's body. And he says, the timbers of the ark are the cross that bear the sins of mankind. And I say, I don't advocate that methodology. I'm not trying to preach that all these numbers have secret meanings, but I will say this. However Augustine got there, he got to the right place, didn't he? He arrived with the realization that our salvation comes through Christ alone and that we are carried over destruction through Christ alone. And then if we take it and we go to chapter 8, verse 1, we see that through the Spirit, something new happens afterwards. After we're saved and we say what's next, God remembers us, and he sends his spirit. And this is what happens. The spirit blows over the waters. And the waters begin to go down. And pretty soon, the ark comes to rest. Imagine being Noah when that would happen. You'd have a total party. I mean, imagine. You've been floating around wondering, am I 100 feet over the surface? Am I 1,000 feet over the surface? Is this the reality that I know? Is this salvation? Well, will the rest of mankind occur on this boat? And then one day, you're trying to eat breakfast, Right? And, you know, and all the plates slide over, hit a goose. You know, I mean, that's what's going on here. Imagine the excitement. Imagine the hope that Noah would say to his family, God has remembered us. That's what he would say. He said, God has remembered us. The wind is blowing. The seas are receding. And he goes and he gets a bird and he says, maybe there's land. 
So he opens up the window and he sends the bird out. The bird comes back and he goes, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait like a month, a day. I'll wait a day. I get another bird. He gets another bird and he sends it out, right? And that one comes back the next day and he's like, okay, I need to wait. Seven days. Seven's a magic number. So I'll wait seven days. So he waits seven days. He sends another one back and this one comes back with an olive branch. Imagine the hope of Noah, that God has remembered us, that our salvation is not simply being rescued from our sins and that's it. That you and I don't simply get saved and then wait to die for our reward. There's something else, and no one knows it, and he's praying for it, and God remembers, and he sends the Spirit, and the Spirit brings forth new creation. And what you begin to see is through the power of the Spirit, new creation breaks forth. The waters part, and the land comes up, and before you know it, Noah looks out and he sees what look like mountain peaks as the high points in the land start to bear themselves again. And then the dove shows up with the olive branch, and then the dove no longer returns. And Noah says, there's new creation. God has remembered us. God has not forgotten us. And that's our second point this morning, that in Christ, there is a new beginning, and that beginning comes with the Spirit. Now, some of us, I think, live a half-gospel. I think some of us, I've already said, are kind of sin management Christians, that our faith roughly equates to we got saved from our sins. That's kind of how we think about it. I think, that, I think it is accurate that Christ saves us from our sins. I think it is fundamental. I think it is elemental, but I think it is incomplete. And so I'll give you a biblical example. There's this guy, his name is John. He's just a little older than Jesus, and he's roaming around the land. He's the son of a priest. He is the child of a prophecy. He's born and he lives in the desert and he call, he's a prophet. Everybody thinks he's a prophet. He's wise. They call him John the Baptist because he travels the land and he preaches this message. He says, the kingdom of God is near, so repent. The kingdom of the holy God, the Messiah, the chosen one, is about to be in the land. Therefore, repent of your sins. Seek repentance so that you can be right with the Lord. That is the message of the baptizer the baptism for the repentance of sins. His baptism is a cleansing of sins. That's the, that is the message in the gospel of John the Baptist. John the Baptist would do very well on the ark, wouldn't he? Repentance of sins, repentance of sins, repentance of sins. Then somebody else shows up, right? A Christ. And he shows up and he offers a different baptism. He offers a baptism of the Spirit. So when Christ talks about life in the Christian way, he doesn't talk so much about sin. He hits on sin, but he hits on sin on the way to new life, doesn't he? He says to the woman at the well, there's sin we need to talk about, but I offer you water for which you will never thirst, is what he says. When Nicodemus comes to him, he doesn't talk about Nicodemus' sin. He says what? He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He says you need to be born of water and of spirit. And Christ sees that a baptism and a life of repentance of sins only is an incomplete gospel, that there is a second fuller gospel, which is life in the Spirit, which is being embracing our new creation, which is accepting the fact that God has brought this creation forth for us. We are new creations in Christ, and that is a fuller baptism. A few decades later, there's this new guy on the street. His name's Apollos which we don't know all that much about. We know he's from Alexandria, and we know he knew his scripture. But somehow along the way, Apollos 
came into the Lord via John the Baptist and not Christ. He was one of those people who heard the baptizer preach and said, I want that. I need that. And so he received the baptism for repentance of sins, and he, right there he became a missionary. He had half the story, but the half the story was good enough for Apollos, and he took off and he started preaching the gospel according to the baptizer. Repent, because the kingdom is near. Repent for your sins. Repent for your sins. Well, he, on his travels, and he was good. The Bible says he knew what he was talking about. On his travels, he ends up one day in Ephesus. And while he is in Ephesus, as it turns out, this is like a, like a, like a, as it turns out, it's like some weird story, like we were, like we were there. There's this guy named, the guy named Paul who's there, and there's Priscilla and Aquila, and they're in Ephesus also preaching. And somehow, Apollos is preaching over here in this crowd, and Paul and his friends of Priscilla and Aquila are preaching over here in this crowd, and Priscilla and Aquila, who are some quality Christians, they hear Apollos, and they say, this guy loves the Lord, but he's got half the story. And so they go to Apollos and they say, Apollos, we need to tell you something. There is good news in being baptized for the remissions of sins, but there is better news. They say there is baptism of the Spirit. And when you're baptized of the Spirit, you become a new creation in Jesus Christ. And you know what Apollos says? Apollos says, I need to be rebaptized. I need the full story. I am not satisfied being on the boat, simply experiencing day by day the forgiveness of sins. I need to know what that purpose is for. Give me this baptism of the Spirit. And so he's baptized by Priscilla and Aquila, and the Spirit comes upon him, and he becomes a great missionary for the church. In fact, we read about him in the letter to the Corinthians. But Apollos was somebody who was not satisfied with baptism for the remission of sins alone. He's not satisfied with being on the boat. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I wonder today how many of us are sitting on the ark simply enjoying our salvation through faith in Christ for the remission of sins. Because that's the easy part, isn't it? It's not hard work. Christ does all the work when it comes to salvation of sins. I believe he saves. His scars have set me free. It's the easy part. If I believe, he saves. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit does uncomfortable things to us. Because now we have conviction to get up and go. It is the Spirit that prods us to make us work. It is the Spirit that makes us dissatisfied with relationships in our family, among our friends. It makes us dissatisfied with the world we live in. It is life in the Spirit that is work. And I wonder today how many Christians just stay on the boat because God does all the work. It's interesting. If you look at the Noah account, God commands and Noah builds. God commands and Noah builds. God commands and Noah gets animals. God commands and Noah gets in the boat. And then the waters come, and Noah doesn't do a thing by command of the Lord at all until God says, it's time to get off the boat and start over. God is silent for the whole flood in the account. And it builds this idea that when Noah got in and the Lord shut the door, that it was now in the hands of God. Right? There's nothing about salvation that you can do or I can do. We are carried over destruction in the body of Christ 
all by the work of Christ. We see it in baptism and we see it in communion. When we talk about the two, have you ever noticed in those two ordinances, there are often two major movements of the, of the ordinance. So in baptism, when a pastor is laying the person down to be baptized, what does he say? He says, we are buried with Christ in baptism, right? That's the salvation of the ship. We are saved from destruction through the death of Christ in baptism. And then does the pastor let the person go and go do praise music? No. He says this. That would be pretty weird, wouldn't it? I should do that just as like an illustration one Sunday. Just like 30 seconds. No, he says this. We are buried with Christ in baptism and we are raised to new life with him. There is new life in the spirit. Communion is the same way. Christ says in 1 Corinthians, his words are recorded. He says, this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, remember my body, the sacrifice that I endured so that you could survive destruction. That's what Jesus says. Does he say the same thing about the blood? He, no, he doesn't. He says this about the blood. He says, take this cup. This cup is the cup of a new covenant in my blood. The body experiences the sacrifice and the salvation of the ark. The spirit in the cup in the covenant is the notion that the gospel is something that starts at salvation and blossoms with the Spirit. And that's where we find ourselves when God finally says in chapter 8, it's time to get off the boat. Chapter 8, verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds and the animals and the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Come into new life, the Lord says. I have saved you for this. Come out into new life. And then Noah worships. And I, I, I love this idea of worship. First of all, if you read the scriptures here, you imagine that animals probably went pretty high on the commodity market the day you got off the ark. You know, at best you got seven pairs. At worst you got two. What does Noah do? Taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings. That's faith. This is all the animals I got. And he says to his sons, go get a pair of each of the clean animals. Because we are going to worship the Lord. And I see this worship. This is the kind of high worship that Christians have. Cain and Abel worshiped the Lord simply because of who God was. They worshiped the Lord for sustaining them. They worship the Lord for providing him for them. Noah worships the Lord differently. Noah worships the Lord not just for who he is. Noah worships the Lord for what he has done, for the salvation that he has received. Noah worships God not just because he saved him from destruction, but because he brought him into new life. And I say even we as Christians can worship more than that. That when we bring our offerings to the Lord, we not only worship the Lord for what he's done for us, for sustaining us, not just for saving us, not just for giving us new life, but when we worship God, we worship God that not for what he has done and not for what he is doing, but for what he will do. That is the salvation that we have as Christians. It's just interesting to see how beautiful his worship is there. But as he worships, this is what the Lord says. The Lord sees in verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, this is great, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. 
And then he makes this covenant with Noah. In chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and every creature that moves along the ground and upon the fish of the sea. Verse 7, he says it again. He says, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And this brings us to our last point this morning, which is not only does God save us, not only does he recreate us, but he gives us promises in this new creation. He gives us promises and he gives us a charge in this new creation. And the promises and the charge, in my mind, work hand in hand. So you have Noah and all the sons, and they're sitting on this hillside with the huge, mighty ark above them. And God says to them, trust me, I will never do this to you again. The way I read that, because I notice God doesn't promise he won't ever do bad things again, or that he won't ever judge the earth again. He says, I'll never send a flood. He's pretty qualified in his, his conversation there. But what I see is going on is how hard would it you you sorry how hard would it be for you as Noah to get your sons to move very far away from the ark if they were in constant fear of being rejudged? What if our salvation, as much as it as much as it meant to us, was something that we constantly had to reinitiate? What if we were always in threat of another flood coming? What if God got angry again? What do you think, Ham? Would have, when Ham laughs, and we're going to talk about it next Sunday, when he mocks his father when Noah's drunk, and that wickedness comes to the surface, what do you think he might have felt had there not been a promise? God gives us a promise so that we can move on from the salvation for the remission of sins. We are saved from our sins, and God says, now that you're saved, I'm giving my people a promise so that you can subdue the earth. God says this. He says, move on multiply, bear children, subdue the earth, control the earth. He is essentially reestablishing the order that God gave Adam in the first place. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God says to Adam, you're in dominion over the earth. Name the animals, you got it. You are the boss of the globe. I am the boss of you, Adam. That's it. God is doing the same thing to Noah. Noah, you and your people are the boss of the universe. And I'm the boss of you. And I think it would be hard for Christians to ever really live out our purpose in our new creation if we were constantly concerned about, if we had to be concerned about, our sin. We are saved from our sins so that we can get to work. We're saved from our sin so that we can do the work of God. God's promises help us move out from the ark and into new life. So in March, this past March, I went on a cruise with my wife. It'll connect in a second. But I went on a cruise. I've never seen blue water. I wanted to see blue water. So my wife and I went on this cruise with our friends. It was awesome. It was the greatest thing ever. I loved every second of it. Just about every second of it, I loved. I mean, the food was great. I got everything I'd ever want. Most of it's for, well, prepaid. So it feels free-ish, right? (laughs) We had friends, we had fun, we're big gamers, we game so much, it would ah, knock your socks off how much we game. We were the boat gamers. Like people would walk by, they're the boat gamers. Calm seas, there were nightly shows, and I felt valued. You know, I had this steward, 
anyone who's ever gone on a cruise knows the idea of the steward. You have the steward who, the second you leave the room, they somehow slip in through some back alley, and they clean. So like, you could like, toss a sock on the floor, go, come back two hours later, and the sock is tied into some like, origami animal. And I'm not kidding. If you've ever done a cruise, they take hand towels and they do hand towel origami. And so we would be eating dinner at 9 o'clock at night. And me and our, we and our friends, we'd say, oh, I wonder what animal will be in our room when we get back. And we'd rush to our rooms and I'd be like, I got a lobster. And it would be a lobster. But he would have, the steward would find my sunglasses and he would put it on the lobster. And I felt so valued. You know, and our friends would come out of their room and go, we got a monkey. Yeah. We're so valued. I mean, who could ask for anything more? Who could ask for anything more? I even had a window. I wonder, Christians, if what we do in our life is we're so scared to live God's new creation that we decide we're going to live on the ark and just make it nice. I wonder if we say, The hard new life that God has called us to is too hard. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live half the gospel. I'm going to enjoy my salvation for my sins. I'm going to live on the boat, and I'm going to make the rooms of the boat nice. I'm going to edify the boat so that I'll never want to leave. I'll make the boat a little floating paradise. And I'm here to say that God has called us off the boat. That it is not satisfactory to simply enjoy the forgiveness of sins if you are not embracing our charge to subdue the earth. And this is what I see. This is characteristic of the history of the church. What happens when the secular world starts to embrace something that was once ours? We historically totally disown it. So in the 17, 1800s, you know what happens? Painters start to go, you know what? I can paint pictures that aren't necessarily religious. Maybe I'll just paint a picture of a vase. Well, when that happens, you know what the church did? They stopped painting. The same thing happened in the 18 and 1900s when somebody said, you know what, we don't always have to write hymns. Maybe we can just write a song about life, about the blues. And you know what happened when people started writing songs about life? The church stopped writing songs. Or what about this? What happened when the secular world said, you know what we can do? We can love the poor people. I'm sad to say, but there are facets of the church that said, if they're going to love poor people, we're not. I just wonder, time and time again, when we forget our charge, this is our world. God gave this world to believers. He gave this world to Christians to say, subdue it. And when the secular world comes along and says, we can do that, I say, we can do it too, and we can do it better because we have a whole story. I say, not only can we love the poor, but we can redeem the poor. We can, through our work, bring new creation. Right? God has made us, through living our new creation, instruments of new creation. And it is not sufficient for us to say when the second world says, we'll do that, that, and that, for us to go, okay, well, we'll be on our boat at a show. We'll be on our boat listening to music and seeing what our steward will do next Sunday. We'll be on a boat waiting to see how we're served and what programs are, on the night, are, are up for the night. We have been called to live off the boat. We have been called not to be customers, but to be stewards of the earth. We have been called to make little towel animals for others.
That's what we've been called for. And I wonder to what degree you and I and the church run from new creation. I started the message this morning reading Ephesians 2, or I recited it to you. I said, by grace, Noah was saved through his faith, and even that was a gift from God. Right? That was just morphing Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I'll read it to you now, and I'll close with it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. That's the ark. The ark is the gift. Not by works, so that no man can boast. And this is what verse 10 says. For, i.e. therefore, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have been saved so that we can be instruments of God's workmanship to do the works that he has prepared in advance for us. There is work for the church to do, and it is outside of the ark. It is in the new creation that belongs to us. So my question to you is, where are you right now? Is your faith simply boiled down to what is in store for you each Sunday at the ark? Or is your faith lived out in your life? Do you retreat to church, or do you advance into the world? Do you bring new creation out or do you simply come here to recharge your batteries? And I'm not saying that's not illegal. I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm saying it's incomplete. It's the incomplete story. And you will find yourself when times get hard probably wondering, is this it? Because the work of Christ is hard, but it's satisfying. And it brings joy. Amen. And so I would, I would ask that you would pray as VBS approaches. And that is, for those of you who are helping, that you would keep that in mind that there are people who are here to hear about Christ and that we would be faithful to tell them. 
So if you bow your heads, I'll, I'll pray a blessing. Would the Lord bless us and keep us. Let his face shine upon us. Let his countenance be over us and give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning.